0: Hello and welcome to Sit and Listen, a production of Science in the News. We are a graduate student-led organization at Harvard University, focused on generating discussions between scientists, other experts, and enthusiasts. Recently, the Sit and Listen team has been putting together a series on Earth and space. In our first episode, we discussed how learning about oceans on Earth can help us search for life in the cosmos. I was fortunate enough to be able to sit down with an expert, Dr. Christopher German, to hear about the state of the art in this area of research. As a bonus episode, we wanted to let you hear my whole interview, which goes far beyond the snippets we were able to play in the main episode. If you haven't listened to that yet, I'd highly recommend starting there. In this extended interview, you can hear more about ocean worlds, the search for life in our solar system, the technology that makes this possible, and how Dr. German was able to bring together the fields of oceanography and astrobiology. This interview was recorded on April 14th, 2021, And the episode was edited by me, Chad Stein. Okay, so today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Chris German. Um, He is a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Um, So Dr. German, welcome.
1: Thank you. Pleased to be here.
0: Um, So I was hoping we could start off just by um, getting a little bit of information about you, um, who you are, how you got here, what you're currently doing.
1: Okay, so I'm um, an ocean scientist. I kind of work in marine geosciences. My background is my... uh, I first went to college, planned to be a chemical engineer, but ended up graduating in geology. I followed the natural sciences course in uh, Cambridge, So I had a bachelor's degree in geological sciences, but then I stayed on and did a PhD in marine geochemistry and studying trace metals in seawater. So it was getting much more back towards analytical chemistry. And kind of my love was, I was from the geological side, I was really interested in volcanoes. But then when I came to actually doing my sort of like geological like undergraduate honors, like mapping classes and stuff like that, I found I didn't have much of a head for heights. Got nosebleeds at high altitude instead. But during my senior year, was when uh, the first announcements or the first papers came out about seafloor hot springs riding on the back of underwater volcanoes. And suddenly, so I thought, well, like this may be actually the dream ticket for me. I can use analytical chemistry to study underwater volcanoes and never have to leave sea level because I'll be on a ship studying it. So uh, that was kind of when I finished my graduate studies. I won a postdoctoral scholarship. So I came across to Boston for the first time then. I was a uh, I had a postdoctoral fellowship funded from the UK that allowed me to come to MIT for two years and work with a group and got my first chance to dive in the submersible Alvin and go study seafloor hot springs in a couple of locations. And then um, when my visa ran out, I went back and spent 15 years as a government, I managed to land a job as a government civil servant in the UK, like a national oceanographic research lab. But then in the early 2000s, time came for Alvin to get its biggest overhaul in its 50 year lifespan at that time. So it turned out Alvin and I about the same age and so um, I managed to line up a job to actually move back to Hole. also I spent initially came back came back as a senior scientist but spent the first 10 years of the 16 years I've been back in the US working on um, part-time at least providing scientific oversight into how the new Alvin would get upgraded but then got more into um, what else was going on at Woods Hole with robotics as ways of exploring the deep ocean and then I found that that actually provides a link across now to the stuff I've been working on most recently was how you might use the same kind of underwater robotics to go and explore uh, the oceans of other planetary bodies that we've only since since about the same time I moved to Woods Hole is about the, how long we've known that there are other oceans in our solar system on other moons out in the outer solar system so it's kind of a a fun time of pulling it out all together.
0: Yeah, so this this wasn't necessarily even a field that existed when you were training,
1: correct? I don't think this field really existed five years ago. Oh wow. It's kind of like really coming to um, as recently as 2001 was the first time that there was kind of evidence that there was any other ocean world in our solar system, but it's much more recent than that. It's really only with the Cassini mission that it's, it's become apparent that they can happen on in multiple Planetary systems, like some of these larger planets of the outer solar system. And so it's kind of changed from being a, there's a moon of Jupiter called Europa that has a liquid water ocean to there might be a dozen of them, maybe up to as many as 20 candidate ocean worlds just in our own solar system. And the reason they're of interest, of of particular note, is the fact that what's been happening in parallel with, with, you know, a lot of those places have only been visited once with the Voyager missions that NASA launched in the 19, sort of six, early 1970s. Is that those missions predated or were always coincident with the first discovery of seafloor hot springs, which is actually what I specialize in. So, what's of particular interest is that we now know that habitability on our own planet is not restricted to where you can have photosynthesis and liquid water on the surface of the planet. Yeah, there there are things that could be fueled by ge- geological processes from the planet's interior at a, at the interface between the ocean and a rocky seafloor so to suddenly realize that we actually have multiple candidates of places that are geologically active places with oceans in contact with the rocky seafloor in our own solar system is quite different from thinking that the only place we could imagine there being life beyond earth is on some planet orbiting some distant star that's just in that goldilocks zone as it's referred to um, of it getting that exact sweet spot of where you've got the right flux of photons from from the, the host star to keep water liquid at the surface on these other planets so as recently as a decade ago well no 20 years ago as recently as 20 years ago we could still have you know we would still have said well the only way we could search for life beyond earth is either you know, a seti and sitting and waiting for radio trans transmissions to come and reach us or we're going to need faster than the speed of light travel and suddenly that's a transformative thing is that today we could articulate it and say actually we may actually have robots that have left earth have already flown past five to ten perfectly habitable environments that could well have life there today we just haven't stopped and looked
0: yeah so i'm really curious to hear about the kind of um, technology that you're using to explore those things even just to take a quick step back Mm. Um, for people who might not be as familiar, could you kind of describe what you mean when you say an ocean world, and what the characteristics are, um, and how they were discovered in the first place?
1: Yeah, so um, so the ocean worlds are basically there's um I think if people are familiar with the idea of a tree line when they have a mountain range on Earth, you know there's there's a place where the climate's just right, and if you go too high and too, too high altitude, there's a place where you just don't see trees, and you just either have them or you don't. So there's a thing in the solar system called the ice line, which is basically from when a, when the solar system first formed, there's places where water should have been, where it should be too hot for water to hang around and it would get driven off. And then there's places where as you get further and further from the sun, that's where you expect the water to condense and, and crystallize out. So you know, we have, when we see condensation, we have formation of clouds. In the, at, at the scale of a solar system, you get precipitation of ice and accretion of, of water that way. So where that exists on our, in our solar system is basically somewhere beyond the asteroid belt beyond Mars, right? So, so Earth is like a weird outlier in this system. Um, it's a place where there shouldn't be any water, according to the crude theory, you have to come up with special reasons why we do have water, because clearly we do. But, but the rest of the universe makes a lot more sense, or certainly the rest of the solar system makes more sense in that places like Mars are places that have evidence that there was water once, but it also sort driven out. Once. And then as you get out to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, and then beyond that to Neptune and Uranus, you find a huge amount, very large volumes of of water ice. And at the time of the Voyager fly pass in the 1970s, one of the things that was noted was that where we had moons of these planets, so that Neptune and Saturn are gas giants, so they don't have a a solid exterior. Uh, But the major moons of Jupiter, uh, three out of the four are covered with ice though the innermost one is it's volcanically active so it's just covered with it's just like boiling with volcanoes, most, most volcanically active body in the solar system, but the other three moons are a bit more stable uh, They have this icy exterior, but what's been noticed there particularly for um, Europa Which is a second moon out in the center in Jupiter is that the ice shell is very smooth and anything that's been around for a long time should have been created. So there was this question that was known from the 1970s of like, that's interesting. How come the ice is smooth? You might think that it's being continuously reworked. And so the Galileo mission, which is when I first started paying attention, but just, just as an enthusiast, you know, I was, I was a full-time oceanographer, but was just interested in, in this stuff just because it was fun to, to pay attention to with these missions that went back and said, okay, well, we can tell from the density structure of this planet that it it has a low average density overall, but if it has a rocky interior, we can assume what the density of that is. And then that would actually say that the outer water layer must be on the order of, you know, 100 kilometers, something like that. And so the first time I really went to a lecture about this was actually the conference where it was really that I was devoting that half a day being in that particular room when there's a lot going on was really because i'd gone to learn about io because of all the volcanoes right i went and it's like oh volcanoes in a different place in space and somebody's talking about that yeah i don't have anything else on this afternoon i'm going to go sit in on that session and then people started talking more about this other place called europa instead and in in 2000 the question was they said okay well we know that the whole thing it's got this really thick water layer and we know the outside is this really very cold like like, uh, minus 100 degrees Celsius, temperature, ice, so that the ice, when it's that cold, behaves more like rock does on our planet. Yeah, you can hit it with a hammer; it fractures, it faults, it and it can have earthquakes. But they were also able to work out that from the size and the shape and the shadows cast of these big faulted blocks, they could say, okay, well, we know then how thick this brittle outer layer is, and it isn't deep enough to account for everything that's the water layer. You know, there might be 100 kilometers of stuff that's got the composition of water from the outside to the in, but it's only the outer ten kilometres or so, ten to twenty kilometres, that can be this brittle layer. So there must be, you know, eighty kilometres of something softer underneath. And in two thousand, the question was: so is that going to be? Um, Due to soft ice, like a glacier that can creep? You know, we know glaciers can flow. If you go back to the same glacier year on year, it's moved, right? You can put stakes in the glacier and watch it flow, kind of like toothpaste getting skewed, released out of a tube. Or is it that it's actually liquid water? And so they actually worked out, once they've been able to ask that question, the neat thing was that they slid gas in the tank on the Galileo mission and they realized they had this magnetometer on board that they could actually go and, and set up a magnetic induction experiment. And it's called Fleming's left-hand rule that if you have a, a conducting material and you pass a current through it, then you get motion in a, in a third direction. So he said, okay, well then if we do this and we've actually got our magnetometer and we're actually passing through the magnetic fields and we know which way we're moving, we should actually be able to see whether or not there's a magnetic, you know, whether there's an electrical current induced. So come back next year and we'll find out. So that was it. When I went back to the same conference a year later, I made sure that that was like one of the first things I got penciled in of like, let me make sure I'm not double booked doing anything else because I want to hear this. And and so it was kind of cool to actually be there when they had this first sort of definitive argument. Here's why we think it's what's underneath this ice shell is a liquid water ocean with a rocky seafloor.
0: And that was almost missed because the, the, the instrumentation was already out there and kind of after the fact, right. they were like we should study this, right?
1: Yeah, it was a, okay, what have we got with us? How do we set this up? Can we now do this? And um, and it was, it was like part of the extended mission and stuff. It was beyond what was initially planned. Whereas then for you know, and that was it, you know, Europa was kind of the gaming town until sort of the mid 2010s when the Cassini mission, which kind of launched about the same time as Galileo was wrapping up. That was kind of the neat thing of like the Galileo one was by design the the spacecraft was flown into Jupiter to destroy itself, just about the same time as Cassini was setting off, but then it takes multiple years. It's a decade later that the next mission shows up. And there, the, the mission was, you know the primary place it was interested in was Titan, which is a different kind of ocean world because Titan has an atmosphere and it has an ocean, but they're all made of, or it has seas, shallow seas and lakes, but they're all made of hydrocarbons, not water. Turns out Titan does, like Europe, also if you drill down through, you know, those lakes and seas are sitting on an icy crust, and if you drill down through that icy crust, chances are there's a saltwater ocean underneath on Titan as well, Um, and it's also true for two other big moons of Jupiter as well. Um, But then there was a tiny little moon called Enceladus, which is so small, it's basically – it would fit inside the North Sea between Britain and Europe, that tiny little batch of water, you you could actually fit in there. so it wasn't something that was like a high on the radar of things we should look at for the Cassini mission or that, that, that the mission people were planning to look at, but as part of their, once they are orbiting Saturn, they could actually do a tour of, of all the different moons, just like Galileo had done for Jupiter. But it was only as they flew past, so there were again Voyager-era observations that knew that Enceladus was another one of these places that was really smooth on the outside and like a, a perfect like spherical ice ball, apparently. But when they flew past it, they found there were actually jets of water coming out from its South Pole. And there are these four really big fissures called the Tiger Stripes that cut across the, the South, Southern Hemisphere. And when they flew past and, in, and imaged it, they could actually see, it was kind of it they could actually see there were jets of material coming out. And so again, it was a matter of, okay, what things do we have on board? And what can we do? And so they were actually able to, as part of that, Extended mission, fly through those jets and actually get at the composition of of orbs there. So that's an even more compelling. You know, that's at Europa, it's inferred. You know, it just all the logical science. They've eliminated all the other reasons why Europa behaves the way it does. The only thing that makes sense is that the, it has a liquid water ocean underneath. On Enceladus, it's even more definitive. It's quite a simplistic thing of like whether well, you can walk past it and you get sprayed by, you can get wet, but well, you don't. It's not actually wet because as soon as they evaporate and are evacuated into space, then they, you freeze. So you get these tiny little ice droplets. But that was what's really interesting there is that what really, just in the last five years, the results that came out were beyond saying there are these jets exiting from an ocean on Enceladus, the subsurface ocean, is that as people have been able to analyze the chemistry, work out what's there, they can actually say, well, there are actually mineral grains in there that are diagnostic of sea flow hydrothermal venting. And there's really interesting chemicals which are consistent with a particular kind of hydrothermal venting that I've studied where you can actually get organic, you can get spontaneous synthesis of simple organic compounds. And then there's actually been a third level of study that says actually there's like really big organic compounds in the same water that's got this salt and it's got the minerals in it. There's at least one of these ocean worlds. It's not just a hypothetical thing of it could have all this habitability to it. It's um, For Enceladus, it's kind of been demonstrated that all these ingredients are there, and then in the meantime, for Europa, that there's actually a new mission just about to get launched in the next few years, Europa Clipper, which is going to go back and actually do a lot more of that diagnostic stuff for basically closing the loop on the habitability of that ocean world. So that's really the um, you know, that's that's the big excitement now is that what the National Academies are doing right now, they're engaged in a two-year survey call for planetary science and astrobiology, whereas in their previous decadal studies it was just for planetary science, but this has helped move the dial sufficiently that for the first time since the Viking expeditions to Mars back in the 1970s, then, you know, NASA is poised to start credibly being able to put together meaningful search, a meaningful search for life again in our solar system in the decade ahead. That's really cool.
0: Um, And that actually leads nicely into kind of the next topic that I wanted to ask you about. Um, So you've described very nicely what an ocean world is and some of their characteristics. Um, And from what I understand, the thing that was so exciting about them is that the idea was that these are places that might be especially likely or more likely than others to host life. Um, So I was hoping you could maybe tell us about when you go to study these planets, what are you looking for? What might be a sign of life? Is there any kind of preconceived notion that we as you know, humans on Earth bring with us that might um, either help or hinder the search for other kinds of life that might exist?
1: So that's a really good question because I think that's, that's one of the things we have to fight against. There's, there's, there's lots of different ways that life can exist, right? And life doesn't have to be waterborne and it doesn't have to necessarily even rely on carbon compounds. But we could make life easy for ourselves and just turn around and say, well, how about, you know, we know that carbon based life forms in an aqueous environment thrive because we've got a planet that's replete with that kind of stuff. So that's really my contribution is not necessarily to think about all the different ways you could have life in the universe, but it's more a matter of like, well, what are the things I know as an oceanographer that I can actually lend? Now, now we know that there are oceans quite close to home. Let me try and help, you know, bring the oceanographic community to bear on this and, and, and how can we contribute and one of the ways for that is like something I think I mentioned earlier that that you don't have to have sunlight to derive, generate, or to fuel life and so we do know that for our planet now. It wasn't always true when the first seafloor vents were found, this was something that was put forward, it was quite a fashionable idea in the late 1970s, early 1980s, so like oh well maybe you know, maybe these geothermal systems do represent things that have been around since early Earth and could have actually hosted, you know, origins of life and, and stuff like that. For the large animals that we find around hot springs on our own ocean, which do, you know, they have hundreds of species not known previously to scientists, right? It was, you know, and, and they're different in different ocean basins. There's lots and lots of different adaptations. But for the large animals, one of the problems with them having anything to do with the origin of life is that they their physiology routinely seem to rely on there being oxygen in the ocean that they can then react with the reduced chemicals that are coming out of the, the hot springs so the hydrogen sulfide and the methane and zeta. And the only reason there's oxygen in the oceans for them to actually have this high energy return you know the fact you can actually burn this stuff to be like, you know, sit and a bit like sitting by the gasoline that works in our in our atmosphere because we have oxygen there as well the only reason that oxygen is there is because of photosynthesis so the large animals can't originate from that. But around the late 1990s, two things happened. There was exploration I was working on, and then completely independently, there's work that was happening in sort of theoretical chemistry of early Earth and space, was making predictions of what would have happened if you had something like a hydrothermal system during the first half of Earth history during the Archean, when the planet's interior was that much hotter because it hadn't lost as much heat yet. And so the compositions of what was being erupted as lavas on, on the early seafloors would have been quite different, and it would have been more magnesium rich and it would have been more geochemically reducing. And so there were these predictions that came out in 1998. Um, was the first paper I read saying, well, if you ever had seafloor reactions through this kind of rock type, then at 350 degrees, you would spontaneously convert any carbon dioxide present into um, more complex organic compounds. And, um, and there might be hydrogen left over as well. And the reason that resonated was I had just been out the year before tracking down some vent sites in a weird place where I didn't think they should be. And we'd actually got to dive on them with some colleagues from France who brought their submersible for us to go find the samples. And when we analyzed them, we found out that they had all kinds of weird, simple organic compounds in them that weren't normally in hot acid, hot spring fluids. And the reason for that is they were actually hosted in exactly the same kind of rock type. I mean, this is this was not because the earth was really hot in that place. It was actually cold. And it was not because these rocks are being erupted on the seafloor. It was because there were these deep fractures. Because there'd been such a long time since the last time there'd been in an eruption at that location. The long fractures that actually slid rocks up to the surface of the right kind of composition. So these are rocks that in the modern day they crystallize out and solidify more than six kilometers below the seafloor but they'd slid such a long way along this rock that now hydrothermal vents were getting down and interacting with the same rocks. So we'd we'd stumbled upon something that we thought was pretty cool and interesting anyway. We didn't know it on the day we found them because they were in the wrong geologic place. They weren't anywhere near a recent volcano, but they looked just like every other black smoker hot spring that we'd studied in the previous 20 years. But when we looked at the chemistry in more detail, they mapped really well to these predictions of what hydrothermal activity on the early Earth and Mars and Europa might look like according to this theoretical work. And so that really sort of spun up a new line of research for me of, huh? so we could actually, you know, based on this, that, that discovery I made was, was pursuing exploration for a different reason. But this now means we could actually target and think about this and go, well, where would you wanna go and what would be the optimal thing that you would go and explore for to test these ideas? So that little vignette was the first sort of chink of arm. We could actually do things in oceanography that will actually help this exploration in space. And then, you know, that was a nice thing to know in the 19, late 1990s, right? Back, back, back then it was like, yeah, but maybe there aren't any oceans in space. Because, you know, by t- in, as recently as 2000, you know, two years after we've made this discovery, that. said, Yeah, but maybe Europa doesn't even have an ocean, maybe it's just covered in glaciers with a brittle ice shell on the outside. And then 2001 was, oh no, actually it's a real liquid water ocean, and the only reason it conducts electricity is because it's salty. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's worth knowing. And then suddenly, like 2015, it's like, oh, Saturn has these ocean worlds too. And it's like so. Then these other ones probably have it. And and now it's it's you know gone the same logic as people have worked out where there are ocean worlds in our solar system. It's allowed the people thinking about exoplanets around other stars to go back and say, okay, so we know, we know we've like come up with this very narrow definition of what the Goldilocks zone would be for where else might be habitable in the universe. But suddenly, if you go from one planet in our solar system to maybe twenty and then you do the same thing for every other star system the volumes of habitable space in our universe suddenly go up and up and up and up all all because all because of this weird little process that nobody nobody knew about on our own planet until the 1970s you know oceanography had been going on for a, at least a hundred years before anybody knew there were these weird things on the seabed
0: so the, the timing wasn't exactly right but it is a, eventually uh, worked itself out
1: and it it really is it's kind of interesting with with hindsight now, the you the know, 2000 still seems very recent to me. Time seems to be accelerating. But to think that the, I think I, I sometimes have to pinch myself when I do remember how s- soon after the original discoveries that came on the scene, you know, the, the discoveries were made while I was still, like, finishing high school and heading to college. But the first papers that came out were always running a couple of years late. So, in fact, all that stuff came out once I was, like, approaching the end of my undergraduate degree. And so I managed to start getting involved in this stuff straight from you know graduate degree onwards, which means, you know, I've been doing it all my career, but I'm probably about as old as you can be on the planet and to have been doing it all of your career because that it just wasn't available to you. Right. And so and so suddenly now, you know, that was true. But then there was all the work that was happening from from planetary science, from the Voyager expedition going forwards, was happening on a parallel path. And there was really not much it was like oh you're doing that well that's cool oh we just found like life on the bottom of the sea floor that's cool you know and they're both you know both recognized as really interesting things and nothing to do with each other and I would never have guessed you know and one was like this is what I do professionally and that's some really cool science that somebody else is doing that I like to read about in popular science journals I would never have imagined that suddenly the two or something could go and cross over and it was like okay well it was fun to speculate but but then the fact that these things have now converged and, and become such a mainstream thing that it suddenly now it's, you know, there are grad students today where this is like one of those things, right? This is like, here's a field that you couldn't have studied. And nobody could have been studying interplanetary oceanography before. You know, in 2015, I was reading some of these papers while I was on sabbatical. I remember being very embarrassed to actually come back to my director of research at Woods Hole at the time and say, could I have like a month's extra study leave just to follow up on this thing? I think there might be something here that's worth pursuing at this interface between ocean and planetary sciences. You know, and, and now ocean worlds is actually one of like the, the big topic themes of the NASA's, of the National Academy's Decadal Survey of what's next for planetary science in the decade ahead. And and if that only happened, you know, and in in a way that it wasn't, you know, a decade a decade ago, this was not a problem. This was not nearly as problem as it is now. For you, was it a gradual
0: process of those two kind of big fields merging? Was there like a moment where you said, "Oh, I am very firmly in both of these spaces now"?
1: Yeah, I think you know, if I'm honest, I mean, from that 2001 onwards, it had been, you know, I think I'd seen an illustration of there was a, like a NASA infographic of saying, well, if this is, you know, if this is what's happening on Europa, then maybe there's submarine vents there or maybe you'd have a robot there. And they had this picture. I remember seeing it at the time, somebody sent it to me and like, oh, you talked about this in a public lecture because you're working with an autonomous robot. And I remember looking at that thing and going like, okay, well maybe they know how to go land on these things in space, but like that looks like no vent I've ever seen on this planet. And that looks like no robot that would ever actually be able to make it through the ocean. That's not even streamlined. So I used to sort of facetiously think, Wow, <laughs> I, can, I can at least I can at least help their graphic artist know what some stuff would look like. Um, so in 2001, it was this, like, that was as much as I thought I had to contribute. But I did kind of like keep my ear to the ground. And then it was an interesting thing. There was a geochemist who had been a colleague of my graduate advisor. So he'd actually been to see my, my first ever, like 12 minute talk at a science conference in the UK in, what would that have been, January 1987. And I, think I met him once more when I was in graduate school. He was like, he was, at the time, he was high up in geochemical research for the oil company, BP, in London. So I think my advisor did some consultancy work for him on like sedimentary geochemistry. But, you know, our paths didn't cross. And then I ended up giving a public lecture in 2000 or 2001 in London at the Royal Society. Sorry, not the Royal Society, the Royal Institution. So, the Royal Society is like the sort of learned scientific society. The Royal Institution is something of the same age, but was developed purely for um, public outreach. So, um, Michael Faraday was the guy that instigated it. I gave a lecture there when I was talking about subsea, you know, seafloor hydrothermal activity, and then how what I was looking to do then was to actually move beyond doing towing instruments from ships and going out and doing expeditionary science and adopting this new generation of vehicles that were just coming online at the turn of the century of autonomous robots and working out and thinking about how they might in the future be things we could use to go and search for seafloor hydrothermal activity. And so I did just in the, the final throwaway slide, I put up our artists' impression from an oceanographic lab of what an underwater autonomous vehicle would look like. And then I put up NASA's one, just just for a joke, and just put up that artist's impression from NASA of of what that was. So I'd said, and who knows, you know, if this is really like science for the next century, because that was the theme going from two, you know, at the turn of the millennium. It was like, you know, who knows, sometime in the next century, maybe NASA would actually like some help with how you'd go out and do that stuff if we could work out how to do it here on Earth. Next thing I knew was I got a call about a month later, and it was actually from this guy, Max Coleman, um, who I hadn't realized was. The deputy chair, or of the Royal Institution at the time, he like that was something he was doing. So somebody mentioned to him, like, "Oh, you would have enjoyed the thing last week, Max. If you'd been here, there was this guy talking about, you know, robots going off of space," and and then he was like, "Well, who was talking about that?" "Oh, this guy, Chris Joan, and he works down in Southampton." So I got a call about a month later. I was in Southampton, and he was saying, "So I hear you've been like." shooting your mouth off about these ideas you have. Know, and it's like, wow, well, you know, it was just for a bit of fun at the end of our public lecture of just, you know, where, where might this lead us if we didn't know any better? I said, no, 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 that's, that's good, that's good. Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of us that are really interested. I wonder if you'd like come and talk to us about it. I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. He said, okay, well, it will take some planning, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put something together and, and we'll get in touch and I'll have people get in touch with you. And I said, Max, look, it's only an hour's drive up the road from here to there, you know, just tell me when, I mean, I can come anytime. (laughs) And he said, some of the lines are like, my dear boy, did you think I was still at BP's office in Sunbury? I said, well, yeah, where are you now? Oh, well, um, I'm doing a hundred days a year consultancy for NASA's astrobiology group at JPL. That's who we want you to come and talk to about how you'd go and use robots to find C4 hydrothermal vents. (laughs) So that was a, a weird and wonderful thing was like took my breath away, but I ended up flying out um, later in 2001 to go and give that presentation. And then um, and at the time it was still, here's how I think we're going to do it. And nothing came back. But then I actually did manage to move the dial and actually got from a robot that only went to 200 meters that was working in a Scottish sea log. That's That's what I actually had to present. And then I had a vision of here's the kinds of robots that are going to be coming online and here's how deep they're going to go and here's the kinds of sensors we can use and this is how we can get to go out to unexplored parts of the world's oceans and find new hot springs. So it turned out that that was actually part of like, that's what opened the opportunity for me to move to Woods Hole was that they were the first people to develop that kind of robot. But it was me visiting them and talking to them about, here's something I think you could do. And then saying, well, I hadn't really thought about that, but sure, let's try it. So we started this collaboration and so that we had two expeditions, one in, first one was in the second half of 2004, and I was still working in the UK at the time, and the second one was in the spring of 2005, by which time, I think as soon as I got back ashore from the end of the expedition, it was time to actually pick up my bags, and you know, family moved to Woods Hole permanently to come and work there. And a really happy coincidence was it was, you know, a few years on, I hadn't heard anything from JPL in the meantime, And then I think like six weeks after I'd arrived at at Woods Hole, got this like email back to my old email account that hadn't shut down yet. Well, you came and gave this great presentation, but we never heard any more about it. I presume it just never worked out. So it was like I was able to say, "Actually, no, we just had like just had two expeditions in the last year, and we found twelve different bent sites nobody previously knew existed." And so that was a well. Then you probably ought to come back and give us another conversation. (laughs) It's probably you came back for another stay, and looks like you'll be a lot cheaper this time because you're already here in the U.S. So,
0: You said your background is mostly in geochemistry. Yeah. You what it's like working kind of in the, the realm of robotics and these autonomous vehicles and um, where you think the exciting it's, stuff
1: there is. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, it's, you know, I think there's a, a famous Arthur uh, C. Clarke quote that, you know, if you ever did meet a culture with advanced civilization, you know, advanced technological capabilities, it would be indistinguishable from magic. And the people I get to hang out with, you know, both ocean engineers and now getting to meet their counterparts at GPL, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's just like, wow, you can do that. But I actually learned that in, the, in that government lab that I was at in the UK. You know, they were people that were also developing one of the first underwater autonomous robots, autosub. But they also were developing deep towed systems. You know, they had sonars and they had ways of interrogating the sea floor. And providing the equivalent of aerial photography. So you could actually hear it, it, it would like shine a literally shine a uh, shine a sound wave on the seafloor rather than shine a light on the seafloor, but it would actually provide pictures where I could actually see geology at the outcrop scale in a way that just like having contour maps doesn't. If you imagine, you know, you can have a if you're going hiking on a mountain trail, right, You can have a contour map that shows where everything is, or you can have an aerial photograph. And, and the aerial photograph, you know, it's or it's like, you know in the modern generation Google maps, right? You can either turn the satellite on or off and just have the street, you know, the street, the the line, the navigation for your satellite. Having that on the deep ocean was transformative. And then I worked out I could then be doing my chemical sensing of actually saying, I know, like I can smell that there's a hydrothermal vent near here somewhere. And then go look at these images of the seafloor and go like, well there's a volcano right there. That's probably it. And in fact that's how we found like the interesting things like uh, the vent site that led me onto this this the, the space trail, was the fact that we had these photographs of like, I know there's events on here, but all I can see are these massive big fractured slices through the seafloor. there's no sign of any volcanoes here. How's that working? And it's like, well, those big slices, those are big cracks, there's away the water, maybe the water's just going deeper. So then that was like, okay, so there's more than, you know, when you talk about a hot spring being hydrothermal, the hydro in Greek is the water and the thermal is the hot. So. All you need is you need there to be some heat somewhere and it needs to be a pathway for the water to get there. And one way to do that is have the lavas flow out onto the surface. And the other one is to have big cracks where the water can flow deep. But I just thought I was gonna be finding more of the same stuff. The fact that we then said, oh, but now there's different rocks and so the chemistry is different. Open up a whole other branch of things. So yeah, it's, it's kind of weird looking backwards. How many like cumulative like little incremental nudges there were. And it's, it's also like scary to see how far it came. Probably didn't answer your question properly earlier, but from about 2001 to about 2015, I was kind of playing at this, you know, it was like in the back of my brain, it was like a, I'm sort of thinking about it, but I hadn't really allowed my thoughts to coalesce. And then in 2014, well, part of it was I was, you know, I was busy, right? So in 2014, we finally got Alvin with its brand new spheres. We'll go to 6,500 meters back in the water and we completed our trials and basically handed it back over to the rest of the US research community. Here's the big new, better Alvin. And so that was basically, that had been 50% of my life for a decade. And so suddenly in 2015, it was like, okay, I got some time on my hands. And uh, some colleagues in Germany had nominated me for a prize. So I actually, through the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, got to go and spend six months in Germany over that winter from 2014 to 2015. And so I'd been accumulating, like, a library of books that were in this kind of area of ocean worlds that had been, like, a big volume of everything everybody learned about Europa. So I had all these lovely books sitting on my shelf, but I'd never had the time to read them. And so, again, and it was kind of, I was kind of embarrassed that I was actually, you know, this stuff that sounds almost like science fiction was, like, I didn't feel like I could really be doing that as a card-carrying credible oceanographer. It was like, no, people are just going to think i have banged my head or something you know this isn't a real science but under the cover of the time zone difference when I was on sabbatical in Germany I ended up that I had rented this farmhouse in northern Germany and so I was six hours out from U.S. time zones so what I was would do is I would stay home in the mornings and have mornings for doing reading of stuff I wanted to read about then I would go in for the afternoons in Germany which is about when the U.S. was waking up And so I'd have time to interact with my German hosts in the afternoons to the extent that they wanted to, but I could also then be servicing my email account and stuff like that. And I deliberately didn't have email in this farmhouse. So I was cut off, but I had this massive farmhouse table. So I just covered it with all these books. So I just spent my mornings just reading all these things um, about Europa and astrobiology and and trying to come up with my my best understanding of, of whether there was something here I remember giving this to a, to a public lecture back in Woods Hole last about 18 months ago now, pre-COVID. Um, and it really was. It felt like I'd been wandering along a path like through a cornfield, you know, like through some kind of maze. Of, like I was following this like, logic one step at a time. And then I suddenly came out on top of a hillside and looked back to where I'd come from. Like, is this really where I ended up? that now i think we should be using oceanography to go and look for life beyond earth in outer space really (laughs) it's like you know and i got there on my own without without having anyone to discuss it with right i mean this was stuff that i was just doing in my own private like so then i'd spent as much time then trying to retrace my steps of like how did i end up thinking that was a good idea because like how am i ever going to go and say this out loud to any other scientist who I hope currently respects me and may lose all respect for me if I ever say this out loud, as this is a good idea. And so then I ended up trying to go back over my steps of like, okay, was there any one weak link here? And so that was what I ended up doing that winter, was just going backwards and forwards of like really hammering on the thing of convincing myself that it made sense. Just because I really felt like I was really putting my reputation on the line and sticking my neck out. This was crazy. Um, it sounds like it was a, uh, a journey that paid off. And yeah, I think it was like, and I think maybe just because I really had to convince myself that meant that when it came time to socialize it with anybody else, it didn't founder because I'd already done a pretty thorough job of working out what all the flaws might be to the argument and like, well, have you considered this? I really appreciate the, uh, the rigor of that thought process. Yeah. I think the only other time I'd ever had to go anything through anything quite so excruciating was actually one that, so like, you know, I have to give my dad, my late father credit for this, because he was somebody who grew up in a naval town in World War II, like he had to leave school at 14 to go and work as an apprentice in the local dockyard. So, you know, education for him was like a, it was a very, you know, precious thing. And so when, when I became, you know, I was like, my generation was like, we were the first you know, me and my siblings, we you know we were the first generation of our family to go to college at all. So you know, from a from a, a dad who was like had to leave school at fourteen, and my mom, her her parents wouldn't let her go to university because it wasn't appropriate for women to go to university. You know, this was like throwback culture. You know? So I went to college, planning to be a chemical engineer, and, and we understood that right. There was a there was you know it was a dockyard town, but there was a big oil refinery nearby. So. My parents kind of like perspectives, they could understand, oh yeah, chemical engineering that gets you a good job, gets you well paid. That's that's worthwhile. And then when I was at college, I said, I really got excited about volcanoes. And it's really obvious to me that there's a lot of sophisticated chemistry that nobody's doing yet because there aren't any chemists working in geology. So I want to switch and go and do this instead. And and at a time when, you know, I was highly dependent on my parents' financial support to actually do what I was doing to suddenly have to call them up. And it was lovely. It was like this complete dichotomy. I remember talking to my, to my mom and she was just like, oh, well, if that's what you want to do, something, then that's what you should do. Just do it. <laughs> and then like, but I'll put your father on the phone. <laughs> and then we had like an hour of conversations of, well, where would this go? And what would your career prospects be? And, you know, is this, you know, is this just some flight of fancy? Is this all this stuff? And, and you know, he. Brought, he brought that level of rigor right and it was like one of the proudest moments still in my life was when it got to the end of about an hour or so it's like well I don't know son I think you've pretty much thought this all through you know and so it wasn't it wasn't the like complete un, uh, unqualified support that my mom was just like yeah sure that's what you want to do go do it live your dream <laughs> my dad was like yeah, how's this gonna work and I that it kind of like that that kept coming back to me over and over again and was like 2015 was, am I really going to go back to who in this sabbatical and say, this is what we should, you know, and it isn't just what I should do, there's this huge untapped potential and, you know, the institution should be really getting excited about this and, um, and they were supportive. And then over the next couple of years, then I was able to contact about a dozen of people You know that, that took me to the next level of like, okay, time to take another deep breath and pick up the phone and start calling some of the people you respect best across the oceanographic community. Oh, and then some complete strangers in planetary science, including that guy whose paper you read in 1998, and say, hey, I think there's something here. Do you guys want to join in? And then we spent about two years. We actually, this, this group of about a dozen people, met for about an hour, an hour and a half, once a week, for at least a year, I think, just honing our ideas before we came up with the proposal which NASA then sat on for another two years. And then finally in 2019, they actually funded us to say, yeah, actually, this is a good thing. You should actually pick this up and run with it. So we now get to a point where just in the last year or two, this is becoming a a real thing. You had mentioned earlier that Titan
0: has oceans that have methane in them. Is that a place where you could imagine life existing or is that kind of so far away from our conception of life as we know it on earth that it might not be?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a great natural laboratory for I think two things. It can be a place to go and study how chemicals might spontaneously generate themselves. I mean we know we know it's got we know there's a lot of methane. We know there's other hydrocarbons there as well, like ethane. We probably haven't begun to think about what all the other interesting chemicals are that could react together. Yeah, the other species that could be present. So it's going to be a really fun place to study just from an organic chemistry and synthesis kind of perspective, but I think it's also a place where we can probably get away from the earthly prejudices, right, of not all life has to be Earth-like life. So that's a whole other interesting field of, well, what, what are the essential components to life as we don't know it, like the ability to reproduce, the ability to transfer information like a genetic code, the ability to harvest energy and for for growth and to sustain itself and, you know, to pass life on down generations you know, to have some kind of longevity. So all those things, you know, that it becomes, I mean, that's a that's a really fascinating play space right? for people much, much smarter than me. But the other thing is, the, the lovely thing is that that you can have all that on Titan. Plus, you don't have to give up the stuff on conventional ocean worlds either, because there's a very good chance. I think everyone's pretty confident that if you drill down through the icy crust, so below the hydrocarbons, and then through the icy material that makes the hard seat, you know, the ground, that there would be a liquid saltwater ocean underneath that. What people aren't sure about is because Titan's pretty big, this is something that happens for, um, for Callisto and Ganymede, which are the Two big moons of Jupiter as well, that are further out than Europa, that on our planet, we never get water that's deep enough that you form another kind of ice. But, under, but theoretically, if you take water and you compress it, you can form a different kind of ice where just because you're so deep, you can form a high pressure ice. So the other moons, along with Io and Europa, we talked about for Jupiter. Ganymede and Callisto probably have like, the water is like the filling in an ice sandwich. There's ice like we know it on the top, and then there's water. But if you go too deep in the ocean, then before you get to the seafloor, you have another lining You know, the ocean is lined with a deep high pressure ice as well. And on Titan, I think it's not resolved which of those might be there. And then to wrap up the big question,
0: based on everything you know and everything you've studied about, you know, the deep oceans and now about all these ocean worlds, do you think that there is life elsewhere in our solar system?
1: I think I do. I mean, I think, um, the geologist in me, you know, it's, it's an Occam's razor kind of thing. So from the sort of like my geological background, the first thing I would say is I am absolutely sure that there's some form of habitable environment, at the very least, on these, on these ocean worlds. Maybe I'm not all of them, but I can't imagine the ones where you have rocks and ocean together. It may not be the same kind of fluid flow as anything we found on our planet, but that's fine because I keep, you know, I found two different kinds of hydrothermal fluid flow that I didn't know about in the last 12 months. I haven't even been to sea. This is just looking at data from other cruises and reflecting on that stuff. I've realized there are places that I went to in 2019 or colleagues went to in 2019, which revealed there's so much of our own planet we hadn't studied in the deep ocean, but we're at least... That's that's I'm I'm well schooled in the humility of discovering things I didn't expect, that I know how to anticipate what else could be out there. So there's definitely going to be the habitable environments. So that's one one way that I come at it from a modern day like understanding modern day oceanography. The other part of me is from, from the sort of like the geologic record that complicated multicellular life forms may be very recent, like you know the sort of Precambrian late Precambrian onwards. Now, the Cambrian explosion was defined based on hard-shelled fossils, but we know that there was the Ediacaran corner and, and gelatinous things without hard shells a short while before that. But we also know at the far end that of the, the oldest life we have, you know, there was basically waterborne rocks, and they had single-celled, there's evidence for single-celled life forms in those things pretty much as soon as the late heavy bombardment finished. So, like, my, my simplistic version is single-celled life is easy and multi-celled life is hard. So the fact that single-celled life came spontaneously like that at the very start of the history of our planet, Occam's razor says, well, then why should it be any harder anywhere else? Why shouldn't it be just as easy if you've got water rock reactions of the same kinds? Then I think there could be single-celled organisms everywhere. You know, Occam's razor would say the testable hypothesis is there's no good grounds based on the science we know today why there wouldn't be single-celled life all over the place in these other ocean worlds and then it's like okay if you don't believe me take me there and go look i don't mind it. i'd be excited i'd be excited to find it that we had an ocean world that was habitable and uninhabited that would be a really exciting answer as well what would it take to convince you of that um i think get me into that ocean
0: and, what, are you, what are you taking with you
1: Well. Um, we actually have variants of, so we've actually been working on that. So we've actually, since 2015, we've actually built a version, a robotic version of Alvin, informed by all our Alvin and robotics. But we actually now have a vehicle where we can actually break holes in the ice in the Arctic, and we've been able to use it to swim down to the seafloor and track down hydrothermal vents people didn't know were there previously. Um, that thing is way too big to put on a launch rocket. But, but we are actively, one of the projects we're working on right now is actually working out how the tether we use for that. Um, How strong it is. And right now, we're working with people who are specialists in ice, both like theoretical modeling of what's happening with ice at Arizona State University and Hopkins University, and colleagues at um, the Lamont Observatory, which is part of uh, Columbia University, who work on ice mechanics. So they've actually got whole rigs where they can simulate Europa ice conditions. And we've got this single optical fiber we use for our thing, which allows the vehicle to be mobile, but it can send information back like any other fiber optic cable. And we're we're really having trouble breaking it. You know, we had this whole thing of like, you know, people. Other people are working on how would you develop a cryobot, a thing that could melt its way down from top to bottom and get into that ocean for the first time and get the first sample of that ocean water. And um, and we've said, well, we actually think we have exactly the tether that would be light enough to be able to take it as a payload and would actually be. And then the question was, is it going to be resilient enough? We really didn't think it would be, um, but it's actually turning out. It's, uh, we we're having some really exciting stuff we've just been reporting this year of you know, we can't break the damn thing It's actually this this technology actually looks like it would work So, um, we're we're pursuing that very actively to make sure that's the case And then my the other project we're working hmm. on is the The less far into the interior of a planet you have to go to come up with the definitive evidence the better So that's the other thing we're working on now is this theoretical predictions of how different ocean worlds would function and you know, the ideal world would be, would it be that if you had something interesting that was sustaining life on the seafloor, would that then contaminate the ocean sufficiently? You know, we know, we know this chemical signals from hydrothermal vents on earth, make it all the way up to the ocean surface in the Antarctic. So by the same vein, you know, the question is, okay, how many of those processes can we predict would actually do the same thing for us on Europa or in And would that bring the signatures up to the ocean and out to the outside so that we can actually find that? comes back to that thing, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if we could find the compelling evidence on the outside of what's happening inside without having to go in? I still want that to be true, but right now I suspect I might actually, to be really convinced, I think I might need to actually go in and get a a fresh bucket of ocean water, but hopefully not have to go all the way to the seafloor. I don't necessarily have to hit it with a hammer to believe that it's geologically true. Was there
0: anything you were hoping to share that I didn't hit on?
1: Only that it's an exciting time, and um, if you're just starting out in your career now, Go pursue this, or, or just you know, even if this isn't the thing that you're going to end up doing, take it as an example of there's no harm in pursuing stuff you're interested in, and you never quite know where the path's going to take you. I could never have predicted at any stage up till five years ago, and I'm in like late fifties now, that I was ever going to have anything meaningful to contribute to the search for life beyond Earth. And now here I am from, from the center of Ireland.
0: We hope you enjoyed this interview and wanted to thank Dr. German once again for his generosity and thoughtfulness. Be sure to keep an eye on this feed for the release of our second episode on Earth and Space to be released soon.